Hello and welcome to this episode of the Skiff Meetings Podcast, the podcast for curious professionals embracing the future of business events. My name is Miguel Nevsh and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Skiff Meetings. And in this episode titled, How Translation Powers Inclusion, I have the pleasure of speaking with Evandro Magalhães, language industry executive, former chief interpreter in the United Nations systems, and a language technology advocate. He is a TED educator, TEDx speaker, and the author of three books, including The Language Game, Inspiration and Insight for Interpreters. In our conversation, we cover the evolution of remote simultaneous interpretation, the subtle and sometimes controversial differences between interpretation and translation. We demystify myths around interpretation. We talk about how enabling someone to speak their own language empowers them and allows them to be recognized. We discuss the ephemeral but key role of conference interpreters, and we talk about the power of genuine storytelling on LinkedIn. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation, and I invite you to check out the other episodes of the podcast. You can find them on our website or by subscribing through your favorite podcast service. Travel Portland presents a meditation for meeting planners. Close your eyes and picture your conference in Portland, Oregon. Your budget is totally under control. With no sales tax, you've saved thousands, which you spend on a group dinner at one of Portland's incredible restaurants. The food, delicious. Your attendees, delighted. And the glory, all yours. Portland, yours to find, yours to share. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Skip Meetings podcast. Today, I am delighted to have a fellow Portuguese speaker on the podcast with me. I have Evandro Magalhães. Uh, welcome, Evandro, to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Miguel. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's not every day that I get to talk to somebody who can pronounce my name. So well done. <laughs> thank you very much. It's funny. <laughs> We've had a few Portuguese speakers on the podcast, and they have the same. They have the exact same comment. It's like, ah, somebody who yeah. pronounces my name properly. Yeah, it's it feels, it feels different. It feels funny in a way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Evandro, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we met a while back, I think, in this world of um, events for event planners. Uh, I think at the time you were with Kudo, and I think we met at the meeting show, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, in London, fifteen, two thousand sixteen, uh. something like that. Uh, and we've kept in touch somewhat ever since, and, and I've followed your, your journey. Um, but I'd love to, um, for everybody to who's listening to kind of meet you virtually, understand your journey. If you could take us on a little bit of a journey, I'd love you to start wherever you want to start. But I'd like to get that first idea of events and the event world and that sort of world of conferences, etc. When did you first come into contact with that? And how did your kind of journey evolve from there? Well, this is a story I've told many times, and actually, it's actually the opening chapter of a book I wrote in 2007 in Portuguese. It's called Sua Majestade o Interprete, so His Majesty the Interpreter, of course, being facetious, where I tell uh, the readers how I, I stumbled into interpretation, first of all, and then from there, I went on to, to have a uh, a career in this in this field, I set up a company and so on because uh, I got so excited about what what that meant and what I was doing that it got really, really it really showed up in my life as something that could be a career. So back then I was working for the the Brazilian Houses of Parliament, 
as a, as a clerk, as an employee, and they had a guest coming who spoke English, and they realized, you know, tip, in typical Brazilian bureaucracy fashion, that they did not have an interpreter to help with the communications. And I had to be spreading around the rumor that I could speak English because I wanted to move to a different position or I was trying to, to get ahead and trying to show off my, my credentials. I was maybe 25, 26 years old back then. This was in 1992, so I was about 27, 28. And uh, I got a call and uh, the the question I, I heard over the phone was, Evandro, are you wearing a suit and tie? Because there are places in the house where you can only go if you're uh, properly dressed. And I said, well, out of coincidence, I am. Because it's not every day that I'm wearing a suit and tie. Oh, show up here. Come to the office of the president. Something tells me that wasn't a coincidence. Yeah, so come to the office of you know the speaker of the house. And I show up not having a clue as to what's going to happen next. And lo and behold, comes through the door, none other than Prince Philip, the the Duke of Edinburgh, right? So the the late father to the current king of England. And again, he happened to be cruising Brazil on a WWF mission, and he stopped at the parliament just to say hello. And and it was one of those easy conversations where they only talk about you know pleasantries and so on. And they didn't have an interpreter, and they set me in that chair. I had no clue what I was doing there. And then I look up and I see, well, actually they brought an interpreter. So I'm actually trying to get out of that chair and kind of trying to duck out of the room. My boss, who was like almost seven foot tall, comes, presses my shoulders down and says, no, you got this, stay there, you got this. And then I had to either swim or drown, right? And I like, I like to think that I, that I swam. So I, I tell the circumstances of that encounter. So we we got to a point where we we could understand one another and, and the conversation flowed. More importantly, I felt really good. I felt, wow, this is this is exciting. There's a lot of adrenaline here. I want to learn how to do this. And from there, again, it's a long story, but from there I started knocking on doors and I started doing translation work. I started trying to teach myself interpreting because I I actually bumped on many doors that were closed. And then that's how my career as an interpreter started. I became the de facto interpreter to the Speaker of the House. So every day there would be an ambassador coming, the princess of Thailand or whatever, and so on. So I I started on a very high diplomatic level, but not because I had the credentials, just because of, again, being the right person at the right time, so to speak. So that's how I got involved. So I, I left my job at the parliament, set up a company, which I ran for 17 years with my wife in Brasilia. At a time, it became one of the biggest uh, translation agencies in Brasilia. And one thing leads to another. Eventually, I came to the US, took a master's degree in conference interpretation. The plan was to come back to Brazil and continue to do what I was doing. But I got at my very final exam, you know, they invite all the proctors in and observers from the EU and the State Department and whatnot. So they saw me perform, they liked what they heard, and literally they grabbed me by the arm as I was trying, you know, on my way to leave the room and said, I'm CV this afternoon. Long story short, I went to Washington, took a few more tests, became uh, an interpreter accredited by the State Department and started working for the IMF and everybody else. 
And then I said, oh, this feels good. I'm not going back to Brazil, so let us stay here for a while. From there, I applied to the UN and in Geneva, ITU, one of the specialized agencies in the UN. And uh, seven years later, more or less, after being a chief entrepreneur in the UN for seven years, I left a very cushy job with a full pension to start a, a Kudu, a startup that's actually revolutionizing the way interpreting is delivered. So feel free to interrupt me next time, Abigail, because I tend to speak a lot. So no, you've covered you shorter. Like, I don't if know what want... thirty-five years in five <laughs> yeah. minutes. So I think if... you've you've done well. I think that's that's pretty short. I like that. So just for those people who don't know, what is Kudo? What does it do? Um, how did that come about? Kudo is a tech startup and a language as a service startup, so to speak. What it did back in the day was, again, in ITU, where I was, we were experimenting with something called remote participation, meaning that you have the interpreters in the room, you have the delegates in the room, the meeting is in progress, but there's a delegate who is, say, in Brazil or India or Burkina Faso who can't come to Geneva seven times a year. They don't have the means or they don't have the time. So they started putting pressure on the organization to develop what they called back then, back then, electronic methods of meetings, meaning I want to be able to speak from where I am in my country, in my language, and be recognized in the meeting and hear back what everybody says in my language. So we started calling it remote participation, meaning the interpreters and everybody else, they're all in the room, but there's one participant or two or 10 who can't come to the meeting and they should be entitled to participate. We started exploring technology to do that. And my job was to sell it to the interpreters, to get buy-in from the interpreters. And back then, as you can imagine, quality was really low. It was all telephone line quality. And I had to come up with protocols that would protect the identity, number one, and the reputation of interpreters. Because at times, the, the sound in the middle of it got so substandard that they couldn't really do anything with it. So the interpreter had to have the authority to say, I'm sorry, the sound has become substandard. We are you know, stopping the, the interpretation here. And then there was a plan B. Somebody would paraphrase what was said from the floor and so on and so forth. As part of that result, I got uh, involved with a few companies that were kind of providing equipment or helping us bring about that, that solution. And in the course of these conversations and contacts, uh, we eventually touched on the subject, well, listen, if technology continues to evolve and if the participants can come here remotely, why not the interpreters? So why don't we go one step further and allow interpreters to work from anywhere? And in the back of our mind, we had that situation with the volcano in Iceland, remember, in 2010? Oh, right? yeah. For 10 days, people couldn't fly. The UN had to cancel meetings, everybody had losses and so on. So we, we kept pointing to that catastrophe as a big thing that could happen again, right? Little did we know that we were on the verge of having something uh, a lot longer, like the pandemic. So we we started to to capitalize on that, to, to try and develop a system that would you know get us ready for when the next disaster hit. <clears throat> and the disaster hit. So before that time, when we were showing it to the first prospects and so on, it was a very good idea, a nice to have kind of situation that everybody kind of loved, but well, maybe someday. And then in February of 2020, 
we started waking up to like 300 email messages, 600 email messages. Like, hey, I have a meeting next week. How can you help? And all of a sudden, we had to grow exponentially and in, in attract interpreters and, and actually uh, get it, you know, popularize the concept, provide interpreters uh, with something that they could use to actually continue to do their magic. So that's the that was what Kuda was doing back then. Eventually, that became sort of a feature. MS Teams developed something similar. Uh, Zoom developed a, a feature to allow you to do that. Then we moved on to a different strategy, which is the marketplace, where you now have 13,000 interpreters sitting uh, somewhere in our roster. And part of that pool is available on the marketplace. So meaning you can now meet anywhere. You can have a meeting on Zoom. You can have a meeting on MS Teams. But you can go fetch the interpreter quickly with a few clicks of a button uh, on the marketplace. And so that's that's pretty much what Kudo had been uh, trying to do. And we're now pursuing a different frontier, looking at machine interpreting and things like that. So it's a, it's a revolution in the making. It was very proud to have been associated with this effort that actually kept businesses talking through most of the pandemic, but most importantly, which provided interpreters pretty much a lifeline during that time of crisis. So with all the, again, the, the reluctance that you, you can imagine it, it creates in, in the interpreting community at first and so on. Just a few, I have a few questions and would love to kind of help you to help us um, make sure we get these definitions right. So we were talking about RSI. I think that's normally what it's called, right? Remote simultaneous interpretation. Yes. How many languages do you speak, Evander? Depends on how you count. <laughs> that's a difficult <laughs> how question. How do you count them? Yeah, that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, again, my working languages, as far as interpretation, are Portuguese A, English B, Spanish and French C. You understand what that means, A, B, and C? I, I have an idea, but can, <laughs> okay. if you could explain, <clears throat> if you could confirm what that means. Yeah. An A language is a language, it's your native language, it's a language that you're totally uh, equipped to work into as well as from. So I can say anything in Portuguese. I'm comfortable saying anything in Portuguese. Is, you know, might struggle here and there for a word, but I know how things are properly said in Portuguese. So I can actively produce speech into Portuguese. A B language is a language which may not be your native language, but of which you have enough command to actually go actively as well. So English, like I'm using English in this conversation, so are you. So we both have English as a B language. So we can produce our own ideas and and you know, format those ideas or or transcribe, if you will, those ideas into into a foreign language and still make sense and be grammatically correct and so on. So that's a, a B language. I can interpret from it and I can go into it. The C languages are languages that although I might speak and get by and, and I have enough knowledge of the language, I don't trust myself enough to produce speech into those languages because I'm going to make a mistake somewhere. Right. So that's Spanish for me. I fully understand it. I'm, I can interpret from it, and I won't make a mistake in understanding, but I might make a, a mistake in, in how I speak the language, so I'm not as comfortable. So it's a C language. It's a passive language. So French and Spanish are in that category for me. Now, you do, again, This is these are like professional uh, languages. Yeah. I've also spent a lot of time in Germany, and I studied German for like six years. 
And at a time, I worked for Lufthansa for two years. I had a lot of courses that I that I did in, back in Germany. I could at some point speak fluent German. But then I went like 25 years without speaking German. And I know you speak some German, if I'm not mistaken. And again, you know, you and I coming from a Latin-based uh, culture, that if you don't practice that language every day, it, it leaves you because it's so foreign to you that it's not like you can guess the meaning of you know the the spelling of uh, of a noun you don't know you have to actually have that in your database so mm -hmm. i totally forgot so today i sit in front of a tv i can get like 40 percent of what they're saying i can get by if i go to germany i can i know yeah. you know uh, i can get by and italian is another language that i totally understand i have actually interpreted for berlusconi one of the one of the summits for like five minutes and but i if i try to speak it i'll make a fool of myself so. So just to be clear, so C languages, you would normally be able to work professionally, um, hear it and translate into one of your A or B languages. Yes, exactly. Yes. And what's the difference between A or B languages in terms of what what work you will do and won't do? Is it just Again, that the A I'm... language is the one that's that's right at the top or would you do everything in, in a B language as well? It means that, for example, if I'm working, say, for the OAS, where they have the four booths, I should be primarily in the Portuguese booth because I'm an A speaker of that language. If they don't find anybody else on a given day and they need somebody to make do in the English booth, they can use me. They know I have a strong enough English to sound convincingly, to, to sound correct and so on. But it, they know also, and I do too, that it's going to take more work. It's going to take more preparation. It's going to be something that I need to approach with a lot more responsibility. Unlike... Uh, Again, of course, if I go into the Portuguese booth, I'm going to be as responsible, but it's something that I have more tools at my disposal in Portuguese than I do if I'm just trying to make sense in English. Right? So primarily, if you're at the UN and where you have dedicated booths, you want only A speakers of those languages in those respective booths. Yeah. And just to make sure that we have this perfectly correct, the... Can you just describe the difference between interpretation and translation? Because I hear a lot of people saying translation, I think when they mean interpretation, I want to make sure we get that right. I'd love to talk about that. And for one, <laughs> You've yeah, had for this one, conversation before. Right? I've had this conversation before, and I'm a dissenting voice in this debate because, for example, the title, the subtitle of my book is The Fascinating World of Simultaneous Translation in Portuguese. Tradução simultânea. Why did I opt for that because that's what people say that's if you talk to to people on the street that's how they relate to what we do oh tradução simultânea oh simultaneous translation so most heads of state when they see you around if they ever interact with you they're going to say oh i see you guys are the translators right that's what they say especially if they are from north america but people in brazil get all up in arms when i say translation because i should know better and so on. of course i know the difference right translation is written material right it's it's the written word so if i provide you with a text or a website that you need to transcribe into a different uh, language then uh, of course that's an effort of translation okay interpretation is the spoken word or if you need to use you know just gestures and and sign language and if you need to to you either do it orally or uh, you know signing with your body and that i totally understand but the 
the fact of the matter is that it's impossible to interpret without translating, right? You can't do that. You have to find the equivalence. You have to find what that means in a different language. And that, in your mind, is an effort of translation. And you can't translate without interpreting. You can't just get a word out of a dictionary and say, oh, this goes with that. This is ChatGPT. This is Google Translate. This is not how a professional uh, interpreter or translator does the job. You need to interpret what that means in that particular cultural context and so on. So the two actions are intertwined. And how I put that debate to rest is to say, okay, great. You have two words to, to define that in Portuguese, maybe in French, maybe in Spanish. But what do you do in Russian, where you only have one word, translation? What do you do in Arabic, where there's only one word, translation? So you have to provide a lot of context around it, but the effort deep down is one and the same. It's, it's interesting, you, 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 the way you describe that, because it's, you're kind of separating the audio versus the written, which is the sort of classic definition, right? Or and you're also saying the actions are different, right? So interpreting is not the same thing as translating because interpreting means to kind of figure out the meaning of what someone's saying and then convert that to a different language. But that may not be a literal word for word translation, right? So exactly. you're kind of saying yeah. these are two different things. And just because one is normally used for audio and the other one is normally used for written word, they're actually different actions, right? I think that's-, that's Yes, but, but my point was, for example, if you're doing just written translations, right? Let's say you go to a, a construction site mm -hmm. in Brazil. I don't know how, what the situation is in Portugal, but in Brazil, let's say when you come to a, a point where it says, well, from, from this point on, only authorized people can come in, right? In Portuguese, it's gonna be a long sentence mm -hmm. telling you that from the, if you translate it literally, it's gonna say, only authorized personnel can go beyond this point, right? In English, that sign is never going to say that. That sign is going to say personnel only. That's what it's going to say. So although you understand what the translation of that sentence is, you have to interpret that into that particular context to say, okay, I know what they mean here is this, right? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, if you're stepping out of a metro cart in uh, Washington, D.C., you're going to hear, um, next stop is such and such. Doors are going to be open on the right. Mind the gap. How do you say mind the gap in Portuguese? You could try and translate those words into Portuguese. They're never going to make sense to anybody in Brazil or Portugal. right? So you're going to have to put together a long sentence. Listen, there is a gap between the platform and the train. Be careful not to have your foot you know, stuck in there. right? So there's always an effort of interpretation, even if you're just translating words. And the opposite is also true. Yeah, it's fascinating that because I'm learning Danish. I've lived in Denmark for going on six years now, and it's it's not easy. Um, but it's also fascinating because every time I learn a new word, sometimes I can see how the word is created. So it's created of, of two different yeah. words or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or when I see it in a sentence, I can see that it is it is kind of a like for example, when you ask someone in Danish um, what's wrong you ask, is there anything in the way? As mm. in, is there, is there mm. something blocking your journey, so to speak? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Right? Interesting. And for me, uh -huh. it's a fascinating sentence because I, I totally get it. Now that I'm used to the sentence, it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh -huh. I would never know 
to say that you know if you go into google translate is something wrong it would it would come up with something completely different right so that it's absolutely it's, it's yeah kind of turn that around absolutely so i'd love i'd love to go back into your kind of journey of, of conference interpreting it's you you must have been at some fascinating events um i'd love to um and, and you know maybe you can't say anything but what was the kind of strangest thing that you've ever had to translate? I mean, you must have had to interpret or translate some very, you know, secret things or some very interesting things. And uh, I don't want you to, you know, divulge any state secrets, but do you have any interesting stories of something or a situation that you were in that we were like, wow, this is, this is a very interesting conversation. I do, but if I tell you, I'll have to kill you. <laughs> James Bond style. <laughs> yes. Listen, that. It's an interesting question because there's a lot of folklore about that, that we get into those secrets and so on, and that we keep those secrets and, oh, I heard this and I overheard that. The whole the whole movie, The Interpreter, is predicated on that lady hearing about a specific plan, and then she gets all conflicted about that and so on. You will remember also when Trump had that meeting with Putin and there was an interpreter in the room and they wanted to subpoena the interpreter to actually get her notes and so on. And there are a couple of things here. First off, an interpreter in that situation, you're just trying to be a conduit of ideas and meaning. You're not clinging to the subject matter. You prepare and of course you hear things that stay with you for a while, but you're too busy preparing the next meeting. You're too busy just concentrating on whether that got across as intended and what's the next sentence and did that make sense grammatically and so on. So it's a constant flow. You're not, even if you're taking notes to do it consecutively, <clears throat> it's not like you're taking notes to later write a report. None of that stays with you or very little of that stays with you. Of course, there's the occasional funny thing where somebody where somebody says something, something funny and so on and, and those make the news. But another misconception is that a mistake will, if if somebody makes a mistake or if a delegate makes a fool of himself or herself or the interpreter does, it's not going to be corrected and it's going to be a, a huge uh, faux pas. No, it's good interpretation is like any conversation where in the course of that conversation, you actually get uh, the chance to say again what you, what you meant uh, otherwise. And and to correct yourself and so on. There's always space for that if you have the right timing, if you have the right experience. So, but people get hung up on that idea that, oops, if I if I mess up, it's going to make the news and that's always going to be the case. So it's, it's a bit frustrating when people ask me for those, oh, tell me a funny story, tell me this and tell me that. And I usually come up dry because I don't have many of those stories that would be really relevant to tell. I have one story, which is, again, back to that very first day. And it's, again, told in, in the book where, because I didn't know what I was doing and so on, and I'm here interpreting a high-level dialogue between the Speaker of the House and a member of the royal family. At the end of that conversation, again, context, that guy, sorry, that guy, I mean, his royal, royal highness, right, was visiting Brazil with the WWF, had just been to the Amazon region, and on the way back, in that conversation, the Speaker of the House, pretty much at the end of the conversation, hands uh, over to him uh, a book, all wrapped up and says, 
Your Royal Highness, please accept this souvenir. It's a book on the riches of our Amazon forest. And the prince replies facetiously by saying, oh, the Amazon forest, you mean what was left of it? Right? Trying to be funny in a sarcastic, very British way. And I'm listening to that and I'm thinking, did I hear that correctly? It's not something you do in Brazil when somebody hands you, you know, a present, right? And, and I'm thinking, no, it can't be. Maybe I, I misheard it. <laughs> if I translate it, this is my first day on the job. If I you know, interpret this as heard and, and create a, a diplomatic incident, I'm the first culprit. Well, this guy doesn't know what he's doing and so on. So I simply looked on, you know, the other way and said, well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Your Excellency. Thank you very much or whatever. In words to that effect, but half of the people in the room was the Brazilian press, so they they wanted to ask me why didn't I do this and that and the other thing. So, and again, and I and I ducked out of the room, and and it was okay. Many years later, thinking about that, what you end up realizing is that this high level again, I get in trouble when I say this, right? But I'm going to say it just the same. This high level of interpretation when you have two heads of state and so on, usually they all bring their own interpreters for a reason because they don't trust anybody else to say what they have in mind because they have briefed that colleague as to what they intend to say, what the intended message is and so on. So that person is really at home at how the message should get across. And if they misstep, if they say something that they shouldn't have said, the interpreter kind of gets the cue and says, um, you know, sorry, I didn't get that or whatever, and gives the person a chance to, to say that again. So more than, than an interpreter, you're an advisor, a trusted advisor who's helping you get the communication, helping your boss get the communication across as intended. When I say that, an interpreter's got, oh no, the job of an interpreter is to always say it as, as intended. Shame on you. You're a bad interpreter. Oh, I understand. If I'm sitting in the booth of an organization and I have no loyalty here or there, I hear this and I'm, it goes out the way I heard. But if I'm accompanying this guy, and if I'm, as I was that day, the interpreter to the Speaker of the House, part of my job is to also make sure that the conversation flows the way it's intended. Right? And later, understanding that this is kind of a joke and so on, that might not sit too well with the Brazilian counterparts, I don't think I did a horrible job by, by omitting what the joke was. Again, I still got in trouble for that. And for telling people that, but that's how I, I look at it this day. Uh, that's fascinating. So it sounds to me like, would the job be called the same though? Because if you're, a, I guess, a, someone who accompanies a head of state as an interpreter, are you still called an interpreter? Because it sounds like the job is slightly different in a way. It's almost like you're, you're guiding or you're helping um, assist the conversation. Yeah, the job title is still the personal interpreter to Mr. or Mrs. such and such, right? Of course, you have, they have the advisors, you know, advising uh, that head of state or whoever that person is as to what the, the message should be, what to say, what not to say. You're part, you're part of that briefing. Mm -hmm. So you, it's part of your preparation as to, okay, this is, this is what, what I think you want to say. And, in, and again, there's plenty of, of examples where interpreters helped people get back on track when they were kind of going in a direction they, they didn't mean to go. But still, the title is the same. Like, yeah, you're I... just the interpreter, so to speak. Yeah. Personal interpreter, that makes it slightly different. Yeah, personal interpreter, yeah.
I think that's it almost sounds like the interpreter kind of nudges the head of state says, you know, that's not what you're supposed to be saying. Yeah, no way, yeah, say. that, that's part of the job, I guess. <laughs> so, um, you know, a lot of our audience are, are planners or working in events um, and interpretation, translation comes in. Um, I think I, maybe you correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like in the U.S. there isn't so much um, interpretation or a lot of meetings don't really uh, bother with that. There's a sort of understanding that you know, if people are there, they will speak enough English to to kind of enjoy the meeting or be part of it. But could you maybe in your mind, kind of go through what how you think planners should set up for success if a planner wants to use interpretation? Uh, and I'm thinking not just in terms of languages, but also in terms of accessibility, you know, because as you said, sign language might be one of the interpretations, right? Um, and um, there's a number of different reasons why you might want interpretation um, at, at an event or at a conference. How do you, what's important to make those, that kind of setup succeed? Is it just enough time and enough budget or are there sort of other things that are important to make that work? Very good question. Um, the thing is, it's a, it's a mistake in my mind to to believe that everybody speaks English. People struggle in English for want of a better solution. Uh, any day, and again, I'm a professional interpreter. I have professional command of English. Any day, if I'm expressing myself at something that's extremely important, if I'm working at a deposition where I am the one making the deposition as well, I want to be able to speak my language. Because when you're speaking a different language, you only say the things you can, the things you know how to say. There's somewhere, somehow a limitation as to your expressive ability. When you allow people to really express themselves in their own language, two things happen. You endow them with the recognition of a human right. Language is a human right. So you recognize them in their heritage for what they are. That is already elevating them and dignifying them and kind of providing the accessibility on a certain level that they need to have. But number two, you empower them to actually share their ideas with the full breadth of their intellectuality and their power. So denying people that impoverishes your meeting. So that's that's the number one concept. Now, the reason why you've historically had less interpretation in the US, it's because it's number one, it was not affordable for most of the businesses and so on. They, couldn't go there, they couldn't consider it, they would have to pay a full day of interpretation for a meeting that was just one hour back in the day when it was all on site. RSI changed that reality and made it more affordable while also allowing the interpreters to have multiple assignments depending on where they are, how in demand their services are and so on. So when by making that more affordable, you all of a sudden open the door to a repressed demand that had been sitting there for a long time. This is what we learned when we kind of tapped into RSI. It was not that people didn't want to have interpretation. It was just that they could. They didn't feel that they could, right? So for an event planner, what I would say is, to the extent possible, allow the, the meaningful parts of your meeting to be interpreted, because that's how you will engage and really get people to share uh, from from you know the depth of knowledge that they have, and that's going to enrich uh, your event. Now, of course, every event has pieces and bits 
that could be automated any day, right? So I'll give you an example. In ITU, during any any large conference, there's usually a, a time in the proceeds where it's all about a votation, uh, I'm sorry, an election, right? Voting. So at a point for two hours, the meeting is gonna stop and somebody from the podium is gonna say, uh, I call on the representative of Denmark. How do you vote? And the person is going to say, thank you, Mrs. Chairman, uh, Denmark votes yes. And that goes on for almost 200 countries. Uh, you don't need a professional interpreter to do that. Anybody could do that. Uh, it's just a matter of getting the rights and no's correctly and having someone check on that. But that's two hours or more of proceeds uh, in several languages that you don't need uh, an interpreter for. So you can be smart about, okay, where do I need human interpreters? Where do I, where can I use machine interpreting or a different kind of solution, right? So, but for anything that's meaningful, for anything that would that would bring people together where you want to create the right report, where you want to create uh, the right, the right, um, the right emotion, the right, the right bonding, then you would want to use interpreters. Yeah. It sounds like a an inclusion and inclusivity kind of question, right? Because you want to include everybody. And I think you quite rightly say if you, unless people are speaking the language that they're most comfortable in, then you're not truly including them. You're, you're, Absolutely. you're, hand, yeah. you're handicapping them in a way, right? If you're forcing yeah. them to, to stay with English. Yeah. It's, and it's almost like you're, you're denying a right to them. Right? And I, I have the right to be who I am and speak the language I do. So if I'm constrained in my ability to do so, I will do the second best thing is, which is to try and express myself in a different language. But to the extent that you can, I allow them to do that. But it's also very empowering for languages, I'm sorry, for businesses to understand that there's there's magic in also making language affordable. There's a lot of language access that you provide and that you make happen with solutions like the ones we brought to the market. Because, okay, there might be pockets where this is still needed, you know, what we just discussed and so on. But there, there are many sales calls that are scripted from start to end. And you can, you know, it, it's repetitive. It's the same thing over and over. And so on, where, where the vocabulary is somewhat limited and so on, whereby introducing a more, you know, a bigger level of automation, you get business stalking again. Right? You get you get the companies interacting more. You get more business flowing, and you eventually increase the pot to the extent that somehow down the road, it's going to create more opportunities for on-site as well as uh, online interpretation. Yeah, no, make makes total sense. Um, and I think that's from the inclusivity and kind of belonging perspective. I think that's something that's going to become even even more important. So, I want to change gears a little bit. Um, one of the things that I think you're particularly good at, uh, you're obviously a great storyteller because we've had the opportunity to hear one or two stories, but you're also very good at turning that into your online presence. And particularly, I've seen that on LinkedIn. You write amazing LinkedIn posts. Um, Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Stories. You're usually telling stories. Yeah. Uh, and there's usually a, a language part of it or a communication element to the story that you're telling. So I, I can definitely see the objectiveness of it, but you're not saying, you know, buy my product or you're not telling the world how great you are. Um, tell us a little bit how you got there, because I think a lot of people are trying to be uh, relevant, uh, interesting on social media, but there's a big difference between trying and, and succeeding. And I'd love to hear 
how you got there? Like, was that something that you just started doing and it just worked or did you fine tune it and, and kind of your thinking behind it? Well, thank you, first off, for, for the kind words. Um, <laughs> again, uh, I'll have to go back to interpreting, right? Imagine spending a lifetime in a booth where you use your number one God-given talent, which is to communicate, to always give voice to somebody else and do that for 30 years. That's, in a way, the life of an interpreter. You have this extraordinary, superior way of expressing ideas, conveying ideas, but you very rarely use that talent to convey any ideas of your own. You're always conveying somebody else's opinion, somebody else's ideas. And that, at least in my case, starts to mount to a level of frustration that needs an outlet somewhere. So listen, uh, great. Um, I love being an interpreter. I like giving voice to other people. And that's a big part of what I do. It's a service activity that I, that I really enjoy. But I have my own thinking. I have my own ideas. I have my own stories. I have my own background. And so I wanted to, more than what I need to express those ideas in my own voice for something I care about in order to, to deal with that frustration, right? Because there's always this funny feeling and for any interpreter that, say you go to a summit, a G20 summit or G7 summit or a bilateral of heads of state and so on. For those 20 minutes when you are in the room, they will tap you on, on um, like if you're sitting with, say, President Lula, he will communicate through you as if you are part of the club and you are a member of the, you know, part of the conversation. He will touch you and, on your knee. And it's a very you know, casual conversation sometimes. You feel like you're part of the club. When the lights go off and the cameras are off and so on, they go their ways. And you're standing there as the support service that you are in that particular instance, right? You know, very noble, very necessary, very important, but you're not part of that club. In, but in, you're in the mind of the prime minister for those 20 minutes, and all of a sudden you're nowhere. Right? So again, that creates a void, at least in my case, that needs to be filled with something meaningful, that needs to be filled with something that at the end of the day tells the world, hey, <laughs> I matter. Right? So in a way, it's an effort of significance. So it, it might be a poor excuse to do it, but it's the way I kept uh, sane in a way in a profession that otherwise had at least for me the the potential to actually alienate me from from the the things that I care about. That's fascinating because I, as you were telling that story, I, I I could just see the 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 same thing for for planners really right like so you're when you're organizing high level events or any really interesting event you have amazing speakers on stage you have all these really interesting things happen and then once the lights once once it's over you're back to being just a planner right it's 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 back to exactly. being sort of an office job yeah. right it's yeah, you're yeah. not in a booth you're not you're not in the booth like the interpreter but in a way your significance kind of goes away very quickly disappears very quickly so yeah Absolutely. I think a lot of parallels yeah. there yeah. But, but tell me a bit about so you know you schedule these in advance could you tell me a little bit about the process you go through or is it just something that you when you think of something interesting to say you you make a note and then you write it out on as a linkedin post i'm always surprised at, at what goes far and what doesn't when i write so for example one of the one of the stories that went uh, uh, really far that went really far was you know, a watch that I got from my wife. It's a Cartier watch uh, called Cartier Santos Dumont. And 
it's a watch that I always wanted to have because of what it means. It's a, it's a watch. It was the first man's watch to be worn on the wrist that Louis Cartier gave Santos Dumont, the Brazilian aviator, because of a, a, an issue he had when taking part at a prize where he was supposed to fly around the Eiffel Tower and come back in within 30 minutes. And it took him another minute to more, you know, the, to, to tie the, 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 the mooring lines at the end and so on. And they denied him the prize eventually, uh, you know, at first. Eventually they gave him the prize. And the, the whole conversation revolved around, didn't you realize that you were running out of time? He said, I couldn't. I couldn't let go of the controls to actually pull out my watch from the pocket. Right? And they say, oh, I see. You're not going to have that problem again. So it's the first aviator watch. It's the first watch worn by a real aviator. And it has a beautiful story behind it of a failure that kind of got recognized as a success. How I wrote that post was I got the, the watch as a, as a birthday present from my wife. I took a picture and I said, I want to talk about this story. I have a picture of the watch on my wrist. And as I'm writing this, I'm thinking, I'm going to get so burned by watching, writing this. I can already see people saying, who does he think he is? Showing off his Cartier watch on his wrist and so on and blah, blah. This is just somebody trying to show off. And that was the, the, the farthest thing on my mind. But I could see, I kind of anticipated, I'm going to get burned by this. And I didn't. So people saw in it the story that was a story that's fascinating, that people didn't know and so on. They came for the story. This was seen by like 200,000 people and got a lot of um, comments and, and reactions and so on and so forth. Something else I wrote, and again, not thinking it was going to go far, was a piece about Winnie the Pooh and the mental health issues that are depicted, you know, kind of coded into that story and so on. A lot of people saw themselves in that story. So again, goes back to what do I care about? What are the things that I find funny or interesting and so on? And that just relating that in a way that makes the story interesting. And because I like writing, I take a lot of pleasure in, in writing it in different ways and so on. But usually those posts, they come out in, in 40 minutes, 30 minutes. They come out very, very spontaneously without a lot of thinking behind it. It's not a plan. Okay, what do I write here to actually cause this and that impression? No, I usually think I'm going in the wrong direction. Or I'm, again, speaking from uh, from my heart about something that I care about. I think the trick, and again, I'm still learning and still trying to find that place. But I think the trick is being genuine and talking about things that really relate to you and speak to you as they do speak to you not that much interested into what this is going to mean for somebody. So let me weave a lesson here, business lesson here, so it gets seen by, by more people. No, it's just a matter of, uh, well, I think, right, uh, writing things as they occur to you. Yeah, I think it sounds like you're just writing things that are interesting to you. Um, you're not necessarily doing it with a specific strategy in mind, but more of a come along for the journey with me. I want to tell you this story. And and if if you're interested, um, which which I think is fascinating, because I, I, I love that approach. 
I think it's the right approach. Um, I don't see vanity in your posts. I don't see, um, I also don't see that forceful business thinking. You know, I see quite a few posts on LinkedIn, which is, I don't know, a picture of a honeymoon or an anniversary. And then it's like, oh, and then there's a business lesson here. And it's like, I don't, no, I don't hate that. Yeah, you I know, it's like, it's that. cringy. Yeah. It's like, don't, don't make oh, yeah. this into a business lesson. Just enjoy your anniversary. Well, of course. Yeah. So I think you, you've, you've struck a, a really nice balance there and I could see it's not, you know, there isn't necessarily a promotion of your, of yourself or your company there, but there's a sort of, let me tell you mm -hmm. a story that fascinates me and uh, yeah. maybe you'll enjoy it too. Kind of. Well, place. that's good. That's good to know. That's good that, to know that it's coming across uh, as that, because that's how it's intended. But then again, you see, unintentionally, it does strike a business courts and somehow here and there. When I wrote the Cartier piece, somebody from Cartier reached out to say, this is a, an incredible heritage piece <clears throat> for the Cartier, for the Maison Cartier. And it's actually now being used in a magazine in Brazil, in both in English and Portuguese. It's the VAM magazine that's going to come out uh, later this year uh, for, for what it means for, for, for business in a way, right? Yeah. So, and I don't mind. Once it's out there, people can make of it what they, what they wish, right? So... It would be uh, nice you, for Katia to send you a, another watch or something like as a, Hey, as a, as if, they, if they were to send me a couple of watches more, I would love that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but I, I, re I really like that. And if you're not following Evandru on, uh, on LinkedIn, I strongly recommend. So hopefully you will share uh, the next steps of your journey with us on LinkedIn. And I look forward to seeing more stories because they're, they're always fascinating. So, Vandru, um, I want to wrap up, but I wanted to ask you um, to recommend someone else who should be on the podcast and who we should talk to and hopefully get some interesting conversations and interesting uh, stories as well from. Well, thank you, Miguel. First off, uh, I felt really good uh, doing this interview. You are a talented interviewer. You get uh, you ask me all the questions that I wanted to, to answer. So thank you very much. And I felt really comfortable uh, here. So kudos to you. In terms of who you should talk to next, uh, I have a, a big list. I have so many talented friends and, and colleagues that you could be talking to. But one voice that I think uh, would be important to get out there, particularly at this juncture where we're talking about business, AI, language, and what it means for interpreters, translators, and everybody else, is Renato Beninato. Renato is a fellow Brazilian like me, a good friend. And someone who's been to me a mentor in a way uh, for many, many years and uh, who's guided me when I needed guidance, but somebody who's had a strong voice in the localization field for four decades and still does. So he's now the, um, I don't know exactly what his title is currently at NIMSI, but he's the, one of the co-founders of NIMSI along with um, Tucker and also behind Multilingual Magazine, the the, well, the magazine and so on, but a great storyteller, a very funny guy. So I think he will do, he will make a very good episode for your, your viewership. Look forward, forward to connecting the dots and having you on the oh, show. Wonderful. And I, and I can, of course, broker an introduction. Perfect. Ravandru, been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Um, keep in touch. And for everybody listening, hope you enjoy that conversation as much as I enjoyed uh, talking to Ravandru. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Miguel, very much. And thanks for everybody watching.